All right, we are live. Welcome back for another session in Rabbi Silver's class. Isaac and Rebecca, partners in secession. I would like to begin by reminding people that we will not be meeting next week because it is the July 4th Independence Day holiday in the United States, but we will come back for one more session the week after that. If you prefer to use your own chumash, you're welcome to do so. Uh, you might want a full Tanakh for this session. Uh, otherwise, we will be sharing the text on screen. If you're joining us on Zoom, please feel free to keep your video on so it feels a little more personable, like a real classroom. And if you're joining us on Facebook, feel free to share comments and questions in the comment section there. We will bring them over here. And if you're on Drisha Live, hi, nice to see you, <laughs> even though we don't see you. So let's... Uh, Let's get started. Rabbi Silver, you're muted. Can you hear me now? Yes. Okay. So we spent the last uh, several weeks on the Akeda, understanding the Akeda. There's always more, but we're going to move forward now. And um, as we move forward, I wanted just to raise a, make a comment about stories. The story of Abraham, like all the stories, has, has a beginning and has an end. And sometimes it's not totally clear where the story begins and where it ends. So for example, our focus has been chapter 22. This is the last communication that God has with Abraham. And it's parallel in many ways to the first communication. Many of the elements of communication one, apart from the word lechlecha that appears only in these two places, but there are all kinds of other connections, the sacrifice, the leaving the past, or perhaps giving up the future, the blessing which appears in both, the place that I will tell you as opposed to the place that I will show you, etc. These are parallels and every parallel bespeaks a, 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 a difference, a distinction, which is very important. But from a certain perspective, one can say the story of Abraham begins with God's first communication and ends with God's last communication. And that's an ending to the story. And we saw that the Akeda references all kinds of stories, both the beginning of the Avram story, the Ishmael story, the Abimelech story. And in fact, last week, all the stories up to this point, the creation narrative, it's a culmination of sorts of the creation narrative. So it's an ending. Having said all that, we also are very aware of the fact that the story of Avram does not end in chapter 22. After the Akeda, we have more. We have chapter 23, we have chapter 24, and we even have part of chapter 25. So it's very important to get a sense over here of where the story ends. One might say it's a story with two endings because endings are important. Endings are the last thing we, it's the last impression. It's the last thing we're being told. So the endings have a particular significance. And I think it's fair to say that the Avram story has two endings. And now we'll have to focus on what is the difference between the two endings. Now the end of, right after the Akeda, this is where we stopped last time. Right after the Akeda, what we have is beginning in verse number 20, verse number 20. Once again, the expression here, it's after these things, after the Akeda, after the blessing, after Yitzchak is singled out as the recipient of the blessing, the one who through 
whom through the covenant will continue. We're told about by Ugali Abraham Leymar, Abraham was told, so we're told over here something about Avram is told that Nachar, uh, that's Avram's brother, his wife has given birth. We, we encountered Nachar at the very end of chapter 11, just before the Lechacha, the end of chapter 11. So here we have after chapter 22, after the Lechacha, once again Nachar reappears. And Milka is his wife. We were told that at the end of chapter 11. And she's given birth to children. And the Torah lists the children. Utz b'charol, v'yaz buzachiv, v'yaz k'muel aviyaram, kesed chazol, tildash, yidlach, v'yed betuel. So there are eight children. The last of them is betuel. The first is named Utz. And Betuel begat Rivka. Typically in the Torah, it mentions only the men, rarely mentions women. But over here, it singles out one particular woman that Betuel is the father of. Her name is Rivka. These are the eight children that Milka bore to Nachar Avram's brother. And then we're told, and uh, Nachar also had a concubine at Pilegesh. Her name was Ruma. And this concubine bore for uh, Nachar four children. And the Torah gives us the name of the four children. So that itself is very striking, given a kind of genealogy of the family of Nachar, right after the Akedah. And we also take note of the fact, obviously, that the number is 12, four plus, eight, eight plus four is 12, and not just is it 12, but eight to the wife and four to the concubines, which of course reminds us precisely of the situation we will encounter later with Yaakov, who has 12 sons, eight born to his two wives, and four born to his two, one could call them concubines, Imahot, they're called Pilak Shot at one point as well, so there's a striking parallel. We are also remembering that when God spoke to Yishmael, God spoke said of Yishmael, Yishmael will be the father of 12 princes. So the number 12 resurfaces here. And for our purposes, apart from the interesting parallels that Avram's descendants will be 12, both in terms of Yishmael right away and his grandson Yaakov will have 12 children, 12 sons. So over here, we also have the 12, and in particular striking that the Torah singled out Rivka. As if to say, over here, reader, keep an eye on this Rivka because she is singled out in the, in the text. And what's interesting here is that one of the functions, or de facto, what the, this little genealogy does is it breaks, up, it breaks up the narrative. There's a narrative, we're being told a story, but suddenly we're told here, the end of chapter 22, we're given a list of names. And let me, let me, let me demonstrate one way in which this, this can be seen is very significant. If you look for a moment at the very end of the book of Shemuel, 
chapter 24 of the book of Shmuel, of which there is very much to say. We're not going to get into the weeds in the book of Shmuel because we're going to get out. But look at chapter 24. Do you have it on Sepharia? The last chapter of Shmuel, the last chapter of Shmuel Bet, chapter 24. Yes. So you have over there, the story is this. The story is that King David takes the census. And after he takes the census, he realizes that he's, has, he has done a grievous sin, grievous sin. Um, and um, so he, the prophet is sent to David. David is told he can choose his punishment and he's given three choices and David doesn't choose. David eliminates one of the three, the one that deals with being at the hands of a human being, but David says through the prophet, back to God, I'm in God's hands. That's the first pasuk, which uh, introduces tachanun. I'd rather fall into the hands of God than be in the hands of the human being. And God delivers a punishment. It's one of the three choices, which is plague. 70,000 people die. And when the angel is over uh, Yerushalayim and God says enough, stop, stay your hand. And the angel's in the threshing floor of someone named Aravna, the Yevusi. Jerusalem is the only city at this point that's not under Jewish control. The conquest of the land takes place in the book of Judges, but Yerushalayim is the place that remains. David conquered Jerusalem in chapter five of second Samuel, but apparently part of it is still controlled by Canaan, in this case, Yavus, and the city of Jerusalem actually in the Bible is called Yavus. It's called the city of Yavus, back in the book of Judges. So here, David says to God, listen, the people are dying because of me, spare the people, kill me, kill my, eliminate me as king, in the next verse, in verse number 17, your hand should be against me and my father's house, which means I will forego the kingship. I forego the kingship. If my being king, I'm supposed to serve the people. And if my being king harms the people, I shouldn't be the king. So let your hand be upon me and my house, the kingship, spare the people. At which point, in the next verse, verse number 18, God says to David, God uh, of David, the prophet comes to David on the same day and says, So he is instructed to go to the very place above, above which the angel was hovering or killing. And David is instructed to go there and the person who's whose threshing floor it is, is named Aravna. Arav, Reish, Vav, Nun, Hey, Kui related to the word Aron. And it's here that David will, King David will bring a sacrifice, will atone for the land. And this place will be determined as the permanent place of God's temple in the city of David, which means in effect that God has a permanent place in David's city. And by extension, that David has permanent kingship. This is the story about David securing permanent kingship.
So David follows the instructions. He goes to Aravna. And Aravna asks him, why are you here? That's in the next couple of verses. That's verse number, what is it? Uh, whatever the number is, hard to read it here. I think it's uh, 20, 21, 22. Aravna says, why have you come? Says David, I want to buy the threshing place from you in order to stop the plague. So Aravna says in the next pasuk, you can bring the sacrifice. You don't have to pay me for anything. In fact, I'll even give you the wood and I'll give you the oxen for a burnt offering. It's all yours for nothing. All of this, all of this Aravna gave to the king, gave to him. And says not only that, and you have my blessings also. And may God respond to you with favor. So it says he gave it to him. But obviously the context means not that he gave it, but that it's, not, it's as good as given. But the king said to Aravna, no, look. I insist on buying it. I'm not bringing the sacrifices for naught, for nothing. It's not a gift, I want to pay. So David buys everything. He buys the threshing floor. He buys the oxen as well, he buys the works. He builds a mizbeach, he brings the sacrifices and the play was checked. Hashem, God was entreated by Yisrael, and the plague against Israel was checked and this, is the last verse of the book of Shmuel. This is where the book of Samuel ends. I'll come back to that. But let me make the first obvious point over here. I remember seeing this years ago, suddenly a hundred things became clear to me. Sometimes you see something and everything opens up. Obviously the second story where David wants to bring the sacrifice to bring benefit to the people. And King Aravna, as he's called, Aravna the Yerusi, he says, take it all for nothing. And David insists on purchasing it. Obviously, that is parallel to the very next story in the book of Breshit. We already saw last week that the first story reminds us of the Akedah, hold back your hand, etc. And I tried to explain what the relationship is. That's just a word. There's a profound connection between the two stories. The next story in the Chumash, actually, is Abraham purchasing the grave site for Sarah, a grave site that he's offered for nothing, as we'll see in a couple of minutes. And Abraham insists on paying for it. So here we have, obviously, the parallel, and it's right after the story that reminded us of the Akedah, and here we have the parallel story. David has to bring a sacrifice to atone for the land. He go, he's told to go to the threshing floor of Aravna. He goes there, and Aravna says, take it off for nothing and you have my blessings too. No, no, I'm not taking it for nothing. I insist on paying. So that's the parallel is striking. But what's interesting is there's one distinction between the two stories from the very beginning. And that is that in the book of Shmuel, one story follows the next. You have first the story about David's confession before God and David saying to God, I'm willing to give up the future, destroy me and my father's house save the people, that's my task, that's what it means to be king. And furthermore, I work for you and you make all the choices. 
And when David understands fully what it means to be king, he can discover the sacred place. That's the parallel to Abraham, as we've discussed. Once Abraham understands how his family works, which is his core mission, he can discover the sacred place. But in the Chumash, before you get to the purchase of the grave for Sarah, you have the little genealogy, the genealogy of the brother of Abraham, the 12 children, plus Rivka. Someone pointed out in the chat, Joanne, that actually in the case of Yaakov, it's 12 plus one woman. Here it's 12 plus one woman, good point. There it's Dina plus 12, and here it's Rivka plus 12. But the question is, what now, given the parallel to the book of Shmuel, reflecting upon our story, what is the difference between the two stories? They're obviously, one is connected to the other. And yet there is this distinction. Rivka is mentioned here in the end of chapter 22. And actually, she could have been mentioned, uh, the Torah could have delayed mentioning it till you get to the story of the marriage of Rivka to Yitzhak, which is chapter 24. But no, the Chumash has chosen to mention it right after the Akedah, but before we get to the story of the purchase of the, um, of the Marat HaMachpelah. So that's actually very interesting. What, what, how does this function in the text? What is the effect? So let me make a simple suggestion about the effect that we'll get into chapter 23. Then I'll have some more to say about the purchase of the grave for Sarah. The story of Abraham is a story which has two endings. One, might, one ending is the Akedah. One might say that's the perfect ending, that's the ideal ending. About somebody who understands perfectly what his mission is, about somebody who can discover the sacred place he's been searching for his whole life, about somebody who comes to understand fully how the family works, about somebody who understands on his own how to allow the covenant to proceed through the sacrificial medium, he understands it all. It's perfect understanding and perfect fulfillment of God's command. The description of what Abram does is exactly parallel to the words used by God in the command. So perfect, perfect fulfillment. Perfect. So that's one ending to the story. But then that's not where the Abram story ends. The Abram story continues. Continues with chapter 23 with the purchase of the grave for Sarah. And it's chapter 24, which is the longest chapter in the book, about sending his servant to secure a wife for Yitzchak. And the Torah spends a lot of time describing the negotiation. The servant is an excellent negotiator. The Torah spends an inordinate amount of time for the Chumash about the negotiation. And one might say, I'll say this up front, that both in chapter 23 and chapter 24, uh, Avraham or his, or his designate or his uh, servant has to, do, has to negotiate with somebody. In the first instance, Avraham has to negotiate with a fellow named Ephron. We'll get to Ephron in a few minutes. And in chapter 24, the servant has to negotiate with Rivka's brother, with, with Lavan. They are both very slippery characters. Lavan we know, and Ephron I don't think is that different. And in each case, actually, what is common to chapter 23 and 24, in each case, is that Avraham 
is willing to spend an inordinate amount of money, a fortune of money. In the first instance, 400 shekel kesef over la socher. That's what he pays for the grave, which he was offered for nothing. But he pays arba meot shekel kesef over la socher. We'll get to that, but it's a huge amount of money. And you don't have to be an expert in ancient Near Eastern coins to know that. You know that for a very simple reason. The number 400 appears three times in the book of Brejit. Over here, the 400 shekel kesef, the 400 years that Abraham's descendants will be in exile before they can realize the fulfillment of the covenant, Abramiot Shana. And later in chapter 32, Esav comes to greet Yaakov. Yaakov's very frightened. He comes with 400 men, means with a vast army. Pharaoh walks around with 400 soldiers. So it means 400 means a great number. So Avram insists on paying. He could have had it for nothing. He insists on paying. We'll get to the story soon. In the case of Lavan, to secure a wife, the Torah says in chapter 24, he gives the servants 10 camels laden with all the goods of his master under his control. So he gives him a fortune. It's called to, perhaps it's hyperbolic, but he's given him essentially a blank check. So you have two consecutive stories where Avraham is willing to spend fortunes of money to secure what he thinks is important. I mean, what is money for, if not that? Of course, obviously. So he wants to secure the covenant. So whatever it takes, it doesn't matter what it takes because the covenant is worth more money than, than, than exists. So that's the parallel between the two. But in each case, he has to negotiate here or is selling it, has to negotiate with a very slippery fellow. The effect actually of having the genealogy here right after the Akeda, and before you deal with Avram purchase of the cave, at least one of the effects, is essentially to separate the Akeda from the other two stories. There's a very clear line of demarcation. The Akeda is the perfect fulfillment, the dream, the ideal. But then you gotta deal with the real world. You gotta make it happen. Because Avram has come to understand that the Akeda, for example, that Yitzhak is the one, which means that Sarah was correct, means that Sarah is not his sister as he insisted in chapter 20, but rather his partner in, 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 in the covenantal destiny, in which case he understands that his son Yitzchak needs such a partner, and he will spend anything it takes to, to achieve that. And in chapter 23, the next chapter, the burial of Sarah, it's actually not about burying Sarah as we shall see, he could bury Sarah for nothing. It's about the burial plot of Sarah being the place that represents the acquisition of the land. So for that, he's willing to spend anything. So actually the function of the little biography at the end of chapter 22 is to say, when you read the story of Ephron in chapter 23, Avram purchasing the gravesite for Sarah, you have to connect that primarily to what follows. You put Ephron in the same category as, as Lavan. In each case, it's dealing with the realities of the world to make the dream possible. Because the dream is the dream in, in this world, in the world of falsehood, Alma de Shikra. So 
the world in which we live. You got to make it happen in this world. That's not true in the book of Shmuel. There is no sense in the book of Shmuel on any level that our Ravna, Mr. Art, is not sincere. He may be frightened, but he goes to David and says, listen, take whatever you want and furthermore, I give you my blessing. Hashem elokecha yitzecha. God should yitzecha, the word ratzon, which means typically in the Bible, to accept the sacrificial uh, offering. So therefore, in the book of Shmuel, there is no separation between the two stories. The two stories read consecutively, one after the other. Whereas in the Chumash, we're gonna read the story of Ephron now differently. We're gonna read the story of Ephron in conjunction primarily with the story that follows. Uh, we will see that. Now, what makes this even more interesting is the following. I don't know how much we're gonna get into this today. These are two consecutive stories in the book of Shmuel. The first we call the David Akeda story. And the second is the purchase of the place for the sacrifice, which is essentially Haramoria, it's basically the, the sacred place, which David purchases, insists on paying for it, insists, not bring sacrifices to naught. And that's the end of the book. That's the end of the book. But is it the end of the story? It's the end of the book of Shmuel. But if you keep reading, what do you mean you keep reading? The book is over. Well, the book is over, but there's another book that comes afterwards. The next book. And the next book is chapter one of, 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 of Murachim. And how does chapter one of Murachim begin? Well, you have chapter one of Murachim? On Safari, you should have it. It should come next, no? You want to go back to Shmuel, the end of Shmuel. There it is. Hamelech David Zakein Baba Yamim. Let's forget about the division of the books, of which we don't know very much, actually. So the point is, the next verse says, King David was old, very old. They covered him with clothing, the Gadim, he could not be warmed. And then his courtiers say, let's find some young woman to warm him up. That's how the story begins. Now, what is this chapter about? Actually, two chapters, chapter one and two of Kings. What are they about? Begins with David being old, cold and old. They bring this beautiful woman, Avishag the Shunammite. But what, what is the story about? What is this chapter about? It's about one thing, actually. One very important thing, and this is critical. What it is about is we don't know who's going to be the next king. Here, we have an important distinction between the story in uh, the story in uh, the Chumash, our story, the Akedah, and the story of King David in the last chapter of Shmuel and the first two chapters of Murachim. Because in the story of the Akedah, it's not just about finalizing the covenant, knowing that the covenant will pass on to the next generation but we actually know who the person is. It's Yitzchak. In the words of the Chumash, bin So we know that the covenant will be passed on, succession, and we know how succession will work. However, in the last chapter of Shmuel, this is a critical point. In the last chapter of Shmuel, we know that succession will take place. 
That we know. And God says to David, okay, bring, this, bring the sacrifice in the threshing place of Aravna. We know David's not going to be killed. His family's not going to die. David will live. And God will be in David's city forever. But what we don't know is who is, the who is the successor? We have no idea who the successor will be. Now, let me tell you something that's very interesting. You know, I'm, I'm waiting any day now for the, I wrote a book on Shmuel in Hebrew, thanks to uh, Tova Buell. And uh, second time she supported my writing. And uh, thank you, Tova. But in this book, this is one of the key pieces of the book, the parallels between David and Avra. And what's very interesting is that actually in the book of Shmuel, there is a clear successor, in my opinion, clear. The person who should succeed, many others would disagree with this. But my argument is that there is a clear successor for David in the book of Shmuel. And the clear successor, the one who would have been king, the one who should have been king, is of course his son, Avshalom. Avshalom is the right guy. Things happen, largely David's own fault. And Avshalom cannot succeed him. Avshalom rebels against his father. Avshalom is killed. How does Avshalom die? You don't have this in the before you in the, but let me see if I can find the verse that describes the death of Avshalom. There's a civil war, tries to kill his father, tragic story. And David mourns for Avshalom after Avshalom's death. And Avshalom has gathered his forces to catch and kill David and destroy David's army. And uh, David manages to defeat Avshalom, David's army. And David's general, and David had give, told his uh, generals, do not harm the boy. Go easy on the boy, he calls him the boy. The boy is the king of Israel, as most, most of the people support him as king. The boy has slept with his father's 10 concubines on the roof, and the boy's trying to kill his father. That's the boy, the Nar. But for his father, he's a Nar. He's my boy. Yoav was told explicitly by David, don't harm Avshalom. But Yoav is told in the midst of the battle by somebody, I saw Avshalom, he's, he's hanging in a tree. Avshalom has very long hair, and he's riding on his animal in the forest, and he gets caught with his hair in the tree. Chapter 18 of 2 Samuel, verse number 10. A soldier tells Yoav, the general. Yoav says, you saw him there. Why didn't you kill him? What's wrong? And the fellow says, how can I kill him? Everybody knows that King David said not to do this. I would be responsible for that. I can't do that. So Yoav, Yoav himself kills Avshalom. He First he wounds them and his soldiers kill Avshalom. And let me find the verse that describes precisely, here it is, verse number nine of chapter 18. Vayikra Avshalom, Vayikare Avshalom, there it is, you have it. Vifnei Avdei David. Avshalom encountered, was found before some of David's followers. The Avshalom Rochev ala Pered. He's riding on a mule. Vayavo ha Pered Tachat Sover Chaeva. And the mule passed Tachat underneath Sover Chaeva, the branches of the tree. 
Hagadolah, the big tree. But Yechazak his hair got caught in the tree. So we notice something interesting about the verse, of course. We notice, for example, the word tachat that appears significantly here. And later David will mourn Absalom and say, I wish I had died. I wish I had died instead of you, tachat. So the mule travels tachat, and the mule then keeps on traveling. Tachtav, and suddenly he's suspended between heaven and earth, and he's caught. Where is he caught? Sova ha'ewa, in the branches of the tree. And of course, the reader immediately remembers the Akeda. The ram is caught. Basvach, nechaz basvach. And here, Avshalom is caught basovach. Now, the question is what do we make of the Avshalom's death being totally ba'ewa? There's much to say about this. So I'll limit my remarks to the following point, which I think is obvious, but I'll say it anyway. I mean, it's obvious once you see it. It's not obvious before you see it. In the Akedah story, the ram replaces Isaac. Torah says, Abraham went and he took the ram. He brought the ram instead of his son. The sacrifice is the replacement for Yitzchak. It replaces him, it's Tachtov. But in the case of Avshalom, of course, the Chumash reminds us of the Akedah here, obviously, but here there is no sacrificial substitute. But here Avshalom himself is Tachat. He's riding on the pered and he's caught in the brush. Tachat Soba Cha'ewa. The parrot goes tachtav and goes away, as opposed to the sacrificial animal in the Chumash, which replaces Yitzchak. Here, there is no replacement for Avshalom. No replacement for Avshalom, Avshalom will die, killed by Yoav. What does this mean for our purposes? It means that now when you get to chapter 24 of the book of Shmuel, you understand that not only is there no clear successor to King David, but actually, of course, the one who might have succeeded, the one who could have succeeded, and the one who should have succeeded, how things worked out differently. He is no more. So we don't have a successor. And you go to the beginning of chapter one of Kings, it's clear that David is old, and he's weak, and he's tired, and it's very not clear how much David understands, and nobody has been designated. Nobody has been designated. It's as if David is still living with the past of what might have been, as I presume many of us often do. We think about what might have been. And usually it doesn't take us any place, no place good. But it is reality. So there is no successor. Unlike our story, in the story of Shmuel slash Malachim, David has to find a successor. The original successor, it's interesting that there are two possible successors in the beginning of Kings. One is the one who makes himself, who proclaims himself king, Adonia ben Chagit, who is compared to Avshalom. He has all the negatives of Avshalom. He has the, the, uh, he has the lack of respect for the king. He has the self-absorption. He has the externals. He doesn't have the other piece of Avshalom. 
after Shalom was a hero when you first meet him. He protects his sister. He acts appropriately. He kills the bad guy. He spares the others. So we have Adonia ben Chagit, but he's represented as an Avshalom type. The Avshalom, it says in chapter one. And then we have the second Avshalom figure who bears his name, who eventually becomes the king, Shlomo. Shlomo was an Avshalom. Shlomo, Avshalom, same name. David never wanted Shlomo, obviously, because if David wanted Shlomo, he would have named Shlomo. So we're stuck here in chapter one. The question is, how will succession take place? But chapter one of Kings, which begins, and David was old, the story at the end of chapter 24 is first the Akedah, the Heref Yodecha, then the purchase of the place that the guy offers you for nothing. That's chapter 22 in the Chumash, and in Breshi, that's chapter 23. And what is chapter 24 in the book of Genesis? How does chapter 24 begin? Person writing this is probably the same person. Person writing this has the Chumash open, obviously. Chapter 24. It begins with exactly the same possible with variations that the Book of Kings begins. Three consecutive stories. And by the way, we're not going to get there now, but the parallels between chapter 24 and chapter one and two of Kings are striking, and there are many, many, many parallels and contrasts, many. In fact, this is the Haftorah for Chayisola. This chapter is the Haftorah for Chayisola. So you have three consecutive stories. One is based on the other. Now let me get to the, to the deeper point over here. Many of you probably, probably have not encountered this, but I do. It's part of my job, you know? And there's a ton of stuff written about Shmuel, and about the story over here. The main point that the academics make over here is that, each in a slightly different way, but they all make the same claim. The book of, the book of David, as they call it, or the book of Shmuel, doesn't end in chapter 24. The true ending is the first two chapters of Kings when Shlomo is made the king. And there's a lot of logic to that, actually. Completely logical, because in chapter one and two of Kings, we discover how Shlomo becomes king. Adonia ben Chagit is the one who declares himself king in the first chapter of Kings. And uh, then Natan Hanavi and Bathsheba inter intervene, intercede on behalf of Bathsheba and David's son named Shlomo. And they succeed in getting David to make Shlomo the king. And then Shlomo eliminates all the competition. He kills Yoav, he kills uh, his brother first, of course, uh, he kills Shimi ben Gera, he banishes uh, Evyatar HaKohen, etc. And that's how he secures the kingship. Okay. The contrast between these two stories are very striking. The story in the Chumash is very sweet. There's negotiation, but it's all very sweet, no violence. And the Book of uh, Kings, which is about kingship, hence about violence, is different. But the three stories are parallel stories. And here's the deep parallel between them. Where does the book of Samuel end? Does it end in chapter 24? Or is it as the academics all claim? Some say we're being very foolish. It's a mistake. The, the book was put together all wrong. It ends in chapter two. But of course, that's a mistake. Coming from, a, frankly, coming from a certain arrogance. We know better. We don't. 
The book of Shmuel has two endings, just like the Abraham story has two endings. They're two different endings. The story of Abraham has two endings. One is the ideal, the dream. It's very pure, it's very beautiful, it's very wonderful, it's very perfect. That's the ideal, that's chapter 22. Then you get to making the dream real and you deal with the Ephraims of the world and you deal with the Lovans of the world and you have to deal with them and you figure out how to deal with them. And it means making all kinds of compromises, which maybe you shouldn't have to make, but that's life. That's life, as we'll see beginning to today. The story of kingship is parallel, but different. The, the way it breaks up in the uh, Tanakh is the three consecutive stories. The first two which come together are all about making the, all about the dream. God permanently dwelling in the sacred place. God permanently dwelling in David's city. David with a perfect understanding of how kingship works. It's all perfect. Then you get to the next story, which our tradition has placed in the book of Kings, which is the book of exile. And that's a different story. And that is parallel to the Abraham story, but completely different. First verse says it all. The first verse of chapter 24 is Abraham Zakein Boba Yamin. Abraham is old, yes, but God blessed Abraham in all things. And in this story of Abraham, he may be very old, but the, the spirit of Abraham is present throughout the story. In chapter 24, the servant whom Abraham sends out doesn't even have a name. Who are you, Abraham's servant? Abraham calls all the shots. The servant says, maybe she won't want to come. Abraham gives the instructions. The servant leaves. The servant goes to a well. The servant prays to the God of Abraham. It's, it's actually the first, it's, it's the first of our prayers and we are praying. The first blessing is called Avot, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The servant is praying to the God of Abraham throughout the story. Abraham's spirit is throughout the story. That's what you have in chapter 24 in the book of Breshit. When it comes to David, when you get to the next story, after the perfect recognition and realization of the dream, it's ideal, it's perfect, David's kingship, perfect understanding. And the first verse of the book of Kings, King David is old, and they covered him with clothing. He could not feel warm. And that actually has two different meanings. One is on the human level. You have a picture of this person, actually, at the end of his life. He's completely alone. You have his court, and they're going to conspire without his knowledge. The court, the servants in the court, they'll bring him an electric blanket in the form of a beautiful woman. You have Nathan the prophet conspiring with Bathsheba. How can, how can we get David to do the right thing? It's right for David also. It's not just bad for David, it's good for David. But throughout the story, certainly in the beginning, it's very unclear how much he knows altogether. Very unclear, we can't get into the story now. Not clear. What does this man know? And the being cold, with the case of Avram, you don't get that sense at all. Hashem beirachet Avraham bakol. Bakol. Says the Medrash, what does Bakol mean? He had a daughter named Bakol. The Ramban talks about this. Surrounded by friends and family, still in, still in control, the patriarch, down to the last day, 
totally in control. As opposed to David, and there's something else about this. When you look back at David's life, actually, and you ask yourself the question, why is it so? Why at the end of his life, surrounded by conspirators, basically, and his own family, figuring out all the angles, and that's part of it is the kingship, actually. Because the king is always figuring out the angles. The king is always figuring out how do I succeed in remaining king? Because the king is always vulnerable. It's about power. And there are always some people who want to take it away from you. And furthermore, furthermore, they covered him with clothing. He could not be warmed. Now, the Medrash ties this to the story of David carrying Saul's garment. And that's related to what I'm saying now about the decisions one makes to secure the power, to secure the kingship. And maybe even you have to do it, it comes with the territory. But there's something else about the clothing not warming you. And that underscores a different point. The kingship, the beggar is a symbol of kingship in the book of Shmuel. The clothing not warming him suggests what we know to be true as we read the story. We don't know who's succeeding him. We know he has succession, but we don't know how succession will work. We have no idea. And it's not clear that David is in a position to make any kind of decision. He has not decided. And therefore, when you don't decide, others decide for you. Whether it's his son who will declare himself king, or whether it's Natan and Bathsheba who will conspire together to get David to do the right thing. So that's the contrast. But the point is, it doesn't end in 24 or in the second chapter of Kings, it ends in both. It's a story like the Abraham story that has two endings. And that's a very important point. Of course, it requires a real understanding of the story to, to appreciate this. Sad to say that, unfortunately, in my reading, there's a lack of understanding. But when you see that it, it's, I would say, I call it obvious. Now, that's not to say that the story of Kings and the story of Abraham are the same story. They are very different. The Abraham story and the whole Next two stories have a very sunny side to them. They're really unusual. There's very little negative in both the purchase of the grave for Sarah and the finding Rebecca. That's not true of kingship. It's not a coincidence, it's not an accident that the first thing that Shlomo will do to secure the kingship is to kill his own brother, which David never told them to do. David warned them about the other two people, kill them, but he never said, kill your brother. Anyway, maybe we'll get to this. Okay, let me stop you for a moment if there are any comments or questions, and then we'll begin our study of chapter 23. Or anything in the chat. Yeah, what, ab what, about, what about the possibility that, uh, that, that David has learned from his experience uh, with God that he doesn't make the decisions. He's waiting for God to, to decide who's the successor. Well, that's true that God would have to give... God would have to give God's stamp of approval. My point is, he could have done that a long time ago. He could have done that a long time ago. He could have, and in point of fact, by the way, it's very interesting that the book of Shmuel does suggest actually implicitly that Shlomo could be the king because, uh, because uh, when Shlomo was born, the second son born to Bathsheba, the first one dies, and the second one, we're told he, God sent a message to Natan Hanavi, who called him Yedidya, Vashem Ahevo. So, so it is a suggestion that Shlomo would be the appropriate one. But my point is, 
this should have been found out a long time ago. I mean, it's clear in the story, Shlomo was never mentioned after he's born. He's never mentioned in the book of Shmuel to, to, to kings. It's obvious that the other one bearing the name Shalom, Shalom, is the appropriate one. And probably it would pass on, we know it passes on automatically to one of the sons. The only question is which son, because in the case of David, he has different sons from different wives. Son number one is Amnon, he's no good. Son number two is inconsequential for reasons I can't get into. And son number three is Avshalom. So actually it's clear from the very outset that the two candidates for the job, that is to say given, and it goes typically to the oldest son, does kingship, uh, it's one of those two. And that actually the fact that Avshalom did not succeed is the blame can be laid at Avshalom's door for what he becomes, et cetera. But fundamentally, I think the text basically blames David. And that's part of the, the David's incredible mourning for Avshalom. It's not too, when, when, the, when this first child dies, David doesn't mourn at all. Actually, he's, when he's sick, after the, this little child is born, David is praying for seven days. Once the child dies, he gets up, he eats, he drinks, he, just, he doesn't mourn at all. Servants say, what's going on? He says, David, what's the point of mourning? I, I, I can never bring him back. I'll go to him, he won't go to me. What's the point to mourn? Which is a very interesting question. That's true of every case of mourning, isn't it? So the point is with Avshalom, it's like he over and over and over and over again, uncontrollably to the extent that in the words of the book, he turned the victory against Avshalom into a great defeat. So no, it would automatically go to the son. It's not that you're starting ab initio over here. We'd go to the son and the son obviously, I think is Avshalom, would have been, could have been, might have been. But with the death of Avshalom, David never suggested anybody else. Amnon's dead. Adonia is the next oldest son. That's why Adonia probably thinks he's in line for the kingship, but clearly he's inappropriate. And the claim that's made without getting into it is that David has sworn to Bathsheba that Shlomo shall be the king. Whether he swore or didn't swore is a good question that I can't get into. Maybe we'll get to it someday, but Anybody else with a comment or question? Yes, the, the difference is the nature of the society. Because with the, with the kings, with David, we have the land. The land is ours, it's a question of who's going to be running it. Abraham doesn't yet have the land. He's the wanderer. People are going along with him because they believe in him. In the case of the Malachan, they it's the land that they want, and they don't necessarily believe in whoever's the king. The difference in the, well, in the nature of the society of these two people. No, I don't, I wouldn't say that it's the, well, we have the institution of kingship that we do have. People requested a king and God said, fine, they want a king, give them a king. Whether it's the best possible thing, whether it, whatever the text thinks about kingship, <coughs> kingship is a reality, and kingship by definition means succession. There's a reason that the David story and the Abram stories are linked, because the patriarchy passes down from father to son, as does the kingship. That's, the, that's what's common to both of them. They both, they both, the definition of kingship is succession. Without succession, it's not kingship, it's, 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 it's shoftim. Kings, that's, that what defines kingship. So the only question is how this is to take place. And clearly, when you open up the beginning of the book of Murachim, we have no idea who the next king is gonna be. David has not designated, if, or if he did designate, as Natan claims, he didn't follow through on it. And we don't even know at this point if he knows what's going on. It's very unclear. 
So that's what, what hangs, it's a, it's a murky story from beginning to end. It has a fair amount of violence in it. It has all kinds of manipulation in it. Beginning with the first story, by the way, this choosing of this uh, woman, beautiful woman, to be king's, uh, the king's uh, uh, consort, one would say. And she is the consort of the king, and then no one else can marry her. She's taken basically to warm him up. And of course, there's another book of the Bible that takes the story of the king never asked for Abisham. David never said, I need a beautiful woman. Not in the story over here. It's the people in the court have suggested who speak to the king, let's bring someone to warm you up. The king goes along with it. Of course, there's another book which is based on the story. Starts with the story, and of course, but it magnifies it a thousandfold. And obviously, that's the book we call Megillah Esther. There it's not one beautiful woman, there it's thousands, brought forcibly to the king, but it's the same story, just multiplied many, many times over. There was even grotesque, one could say, but that's the Megillah. That's the Megillah. And again, it wasn't Achashverosh, he's not opposed to it, but the servants of the court. So the critique actually here, there is a critique of kingship, I think, not just about the king personally, but about what comes with the kingship. What comes with the kingship is the kingly court, the court of the king, part of the apparatus of kingship. And in the court of the king, you have all kinds of people trying to figure out what would the king want, which usually segues into what would the king want and how can I give the king what he wants, which also benefits myself. That's, you know, that's the way the court works. So the picture of the court in the beginning of kings and the, and Abraham is, couldn't be more different. One is a story of passing on a blessing. Of course, it's different. It's a covenantal blessing. But the person Abraham is, is described in a completely different way, a blessed person fully in control, as opposed to a sick old man, and we don't know what he knows or doesn't know. And his final instructions will be, bring his head down to the, to the grave, his bloody head to the grave. But we'll get to that or not later on. But the parallels are what's interesting over here. I'll take one more, one or two more comments. Rabbi, wasn't David told in Park Zion that his son Asher Yetzemi who will be born, will be king, and the only- That is true. That is an excellent point. Uh, it's not clear though to me, but what, uh, what Susan is referring to is in, that in the chapter seven, it says the one Asher Yetzemi which of course is exactly the language of Brit Ben by the way. It's exactly based on Brit Ben that's in my book too. And um, so yes, you could say the one who will be born and in retrospect, it is that way, but I'm not sure we have to read it that way. Um, I'm not sure that Yetzay means will be necessarily. You know, the tenses in biblical Hebrew don't always work that way, but your point is well taken. At the end of the day, it, it is true. The, the one yet to be born, which is the case, because that's chapter seven. And uh, Shlomo was born, of course, later on in chapter, uh, Chapter 12. But but the point is, it's a, it's a very good point. And uh, yes, that is certainly a possibility. I, I don't actually read it that way, but I'm very aware of what you're saying. And I myself have suggested such a thing. Certainly in retrospect, it's true. that But it's funny that in the book of, Shmuel, of Shmuel per se, Shlomo was a non-factor and it's clearly about Avshalom versus Amnon. I mean, Amnon is just no good. And Avshalom is the potential that David mourns. Good, good comment though. Anybody else? Okay. 
So why would you? Excuse me. Yes. Go ahead. I, I wanted to ask um, in the Torah, usually the firstborn is not necessarily the succeeder. Yes, that's and true. And you would have. So isn't this a continuation of the same idea that maybe not the firstborn is the one that is actually the most suitable? Well, he's Bathsheba's, he's Bathsheba's oldest child. Let me say the following about the firstborn succeeding. It is true, and that's a very important point, that in the Torah, the one to get the blessing typically is not the firstborn, actually. Uh, it's the second, I mean, Isaac is the younger of the two, Yaakov is, I mean, he's a twin, but he's born second. Uh, Yosef, who has a very prominent position, is younger. Yehuda is the youngest of the first four children born to Leah. That group of four, he's the youngest. So I think it's fair to say that one can read the Chumash as a protest against automatically assuming that the blessing passes on to the oldest. In fact, it does not. I would say the following. That is true where the kind of blessing you're talking about is something spiritual. But where the blessing you're talking about is not spiritual, but rather a, a formality, an institution that's not spiritual at all. For example, kingship. Kingship is not a spiritual institution. Kingship is a political institution, which is the reason that Shmuel is opposed to kingship. The people go to Shmuel and say, you're a great guy, we love you, but you're old and your sons don't follow in your footsteps. Give us a king. And what are you gonna gain with a king? Okay, you're good, Some, your sons are two bums. Okay, we'll get a king, we'll get a wonderful king, but, but the king's sons will also be bums. What guarantee is there that the sons of the king are any better than the sons of Shmuel? But of course, that's not the point. The point of asking for kingship is an institution where it doesn't actually matter whether the person is a good guy or a bad guy. We prefer a good guy but it doesn't matter. It's a role that you fill. You have bad kings. You're bad prophets. You may have false prophets. You're not have bad prophets because they're not prophets. So when it comes to spirituality, you can't assume the oldest will inherit. You can't assume that. You go for the most qualified person, which often is not the oldest. But when it comes to kingship, and I would add when it comes to priesthood as well, these two institutions are not about the person which is why they are both marked by one simple thing, the clothing, the begotten, the apparel in that case proclaims the person. That is true when it comes to kingship and priesthood. That's not true when it comes to spirituality. It's not true when it comes to prophecy or in the words of the Gemara in Yoma and the Rambam, Israel got three crowns, the crown of kingship, the crown of priesthood and the crown of Torah. Kingship was given to David and priesthood to Aaron, but the crown of Torah is open to anybody. And that's a very important point. So when it comes to the things, spiritual things, religious, spiritual, true religiosity, that's not passed down from father to son. That's the best person. Anybody, the crown of Torah is for anybody, but kingship is not the crown of Torah and it's not the crown of prophecy. Yes, the king should have a prophet in the king's court, the king should be open to criticism. The king has to read the Torah and have fear of God. Right, the Torah is worried about that. In the last chapter of Shmuel, David shows it's at least possible to have both fear of God on one hand and understand you serve the people on the other. That's that great ideal moment in the last chapter of Shmuel. True, 
Now in the beginning of kings, we revert back to the other side of kingship, which is the power and the politics, <clears throat> which is often accompanied by, by, by violence. That's part, of, that's part of the institution. Okay, let's begin now anyway with chapter 23. Okay, let's chapter 23. Okay, we have a few minutes here. Let's see how much time we got. 15 minutes, all right. Chapter 23 begins by you. So Sarah's lifetime, 100 and, right? 127 years. Here we have an entire chapter devoted to the death, the eulogy, the eulogizing, and the burial of Sarah, which is very striking in a book in which the death of women or their births are typically not even mentioned. In fact, something like Rivka, we know she dies because Jacob says, bury me where Rivka's buried, my mother Rivka. But we're never told at the moment that she dies. We're never told when Leah dies. Her death is not recorded. We know she's dead. Shama Kavarti at Leah, I buried Leah, but we don't know when. Torah doesn't tell us. The births of the women typically are not mentioned. And here we have an entire chapter devoted to, to, to Sarah, and in particular to the, um, to the burial of Sarah and finding a grave for Sarah. Now, Sarah dies, we are told, she dies in Hebron. And Avram comes, he comes to mourn and to eulogize her. I'm not going to go over all the, uh, all the theories about where he's coming from. The theories that after the binding of Isaac, that Abraham and Sarah split because she was too distraught, and etc., etc. I don't think there's any evidence in the text for that whatsoever. I think by means he comes from wherever he is to bury her. He's coming before the people of the place to bury her. So all of this speculation in terms of that, it is true that the Akedah mentions Sarah not once. And obviously the Medrash is wondering what she might have thought if she discovered that Avram planned to sacrifice her one and only beloved Yitzchak. Who knows? We'll never know. But in any event, he comes to which has a public nature to it. We don't find very often in the book of Breshit a kind of public mourning. We can only think of two people that are mourned publicly. One is Sarah and the other is Yaakov. The whole burial of Yaakov at the end of Sefer Breshit has a public cast to it. In fact, his body is brought back to the land of Canaan from Mitzrayim and the residents of the land say, Evil Kaveza Mitzrayim, this must be a heavy morning for Mitzrayim. They see all the Egyptian soldiers coming back with the, carrying the coffin and the family and the works and the holy process and the embalming and everything in the morning periods, etc. So we have Sarah on one hand and Yaakov on the other. Let's leave this for now as to why that might be the case. But in terms of Avram's death, Yitzhak's death, his sons, his children, bury him. But there's a you know, small ceremony, it's not a big public thing. But over here, it's a public thing. 
And now we have, in this entire chapter, is devoted to the burial of Sarah. So let's begin this now. We don't meet next week because it's 4th of July, but we meet in two weeks, and that'll be the end of this set. And then we'll have another set coming, uh, hopefully, fairly soon. I don't know exactly when. In any event, now Abraham speaks. Abraham stands up. He speaks to the people of the Chiti. The Chiti are one of the seven nations of Canaan. And um, Avram apparently has a very good relationship with the Chiti, excellent relationship with the Chiti. So Avram says to himself, says to them the following in verse number four. Says Avram, I am a resident, a sojourner with you. Ger v'toshav. Tenu liach uzad kever imachem b'yek b'ram etim ilofadai. Give me, please, and here's the key word, achuzad kever, a possession of a grave. That is a key word. It appears three times in the story. And if we had to pick out one key word, this is it. His interest is not in burying Sarah. He is interested in burying Sarah, of course. But to bury Sarah, you could bury her any place. And in fact, they say to him, you're a prince of a man amongst us. Nobody will withhold this grave from you. You say, anybody here is going to make a space in their field, maybe the edge of the field where they typically bury people, to bury Sarah. That's not what Avram wants. He doesn't want a place to bury Sarah. He doesn't want a kever. He wants, in his own words, achuzat kever. The word achuzah is a very striking word. Lechos means to grab onto something. Eretz achuzatchem, stay achuzah, a term that appears in the book of Vayikra, chapter 25, refers to the land that is fully yours. Not just land you purchase, but the land that came down to you from the division of the land, a stay achuzah. And this land, let me read you a verse from Vayikra, chapter 25 which says it all. Let's see if I can find the verse now. Um, let's see where this verse is. Um, I can't find the verse now. Where is this verse? Hold on. Here it is. Chapter 25 of Rayikra. Verse number 24, verse 23 and 24. You may not sell the land in perpetuity. When you come into the land, if you sell a piece of land, you sell your land. It can't be bought forever. It returns in the Yovel, returns in the Jubilee year. It means you may, you may, you're you not allowed to sell it forever and you can't sell it forever. It doesn't work. Why not? For the land is mine, says God. For you are gerim v'toshavim with me. It's not your land to sell forever. It's my land. You are merely ger v'toshav, gerim v'toshavim. And the next verse, So therefore, in the land that you possess, Eretz achuzatchem, ki bring redemption to the land. Here in a nutshell, we have this important point. The land is your land, Eretz Achuzatchem. 
It is your land, provided you understand to the extent that you understand it's your land, to the extent you understand that it's not your land, that's my land, we are it, says God, it's my land, it's not yours, it belongs to me. To the extent you understand that you are given rights in the land, to the degree it's called Eretz Achuzatchen. And the point of course is that's exactly the, uh, what Avram is saying here in chapter 23, I recognize it's not mine. And therefore, since I recognize it's not mine, allow me to have some kind of permanent possession. That's what Avram's argument is. I'm not saying it's my land. I know I am a Gervetoshab, which of course is true, because the covenant involves being a Ger for several generations. Only in the future, having endured Gerut and Abdut and Inui, can you return to the land. So what Avram says reflects a very profound truth about the story, which is, I am a ger v'toshav. I am a ger. I, I dwell amongst you. It's not my land, not right now. But I want achuzah. I want achuzah kever, not a kever, but achuzah kever. And the b'nei chet responded, listen, don't fully grasp what he's saying. You're a holy man. You're a prince of a man. Bury her wherever you want. Whatever you want. You tell us. Where do you want to bury your wife? So Avram responds. Abraham rises up and bows down. I wonder whether that expression itself doesn't reflect what's going on in the story. He bows low to them. He recognizes his subservience. On the other hand, by Yochum, he arises. So there's the rising and there's the bowing. And over here, that's exactly the point. There's the field that presently is not his. There's the land that's not his now, but someday will become his. And we'll see the word by is one of the important words in the, in the story. We'll get there maybe when we meet next. So he bows down and he says the following. If you agree that I may bury my deceased, my mate, Shimouni, listen to me. Allow me to meet, to encounter Ephron ben Sochar. Avram knows this fellow named Ephron ben Sochar. He will give me the grave at the edge of his field. The edge of the field. He will give it to me with full payment. In your midst. The possession of a grave. So Avram repeats what he wants over here. Not kever. And he adds something else. They had suggested anybody will give you the grave because you're such an important person. And what Avram says is, get me, put me in touch with Ephron. I, he will give me the grave at the edge of his field, but I'll pay and I'll pay full price. So he must know Ephron, that Ephron is a fellow who for the right price will do anything. And Avram says straight out, Kesef Mole, the full price.
Kesef Mohei. Let's read a little more and we'll stop and pick it up next time. The Ephron Yoshev Betoch Benechet. Ephron dwelt Betoch Benechet. He dwelt amongst Benechet. Notice the raven word Betoch appeared twice. Betochachem and Betoch Benechet. Actually, three times. Nesi Elohim Atab Betochenu. We'll come back to this in two weeks when we resume and finish this segment. In any event, so Avram will speak now to Ephron. So Ephron speaks publicly. It's a public transaction. So with public means that everybody knows the, the witnesses to the transaction. Ephron says to Avram the following. No, he says, I, I heard what you're saying. My Lord, you listen to me. You listen to me. So here we have Ephron. Ephron is, in my view, a very slippery person. He's making an offer, but the offer, of course, is not an actual offer. He offers something very different. He says, listen here, he says, the field is yours and the grave is yours. It's yours. Forget the money. It's all yours. It's, it's a gift. Take it for nothing. Avram had said earlier explicitly, I want to buy the grave at the edge of his field and I'll pay the full price. So they spoke to Ephron because Ephron understands this. And here we have something very interesting with which I will leave you. And that is the following. What Avram wanted to purchase, he says it explicitly, was the grave at the edge of his field. He does not want to purchase, nor did he ever suggest he wishes to purchase the field. He said the grave at the edge of the field. That's what that's what graves typically are, the edge of the field. Ephron says, no, no, he says, you can have the grave and you can have the field. Ephron offers in the field, but actually what he's really saying is something else. If you want the grave, you gotta take the field. And the field, and he knows Avram's willing to pay and insists for whatever reason on paying for the grave. So what he's really saying is, I'll give you the grave for a price, provided that you also buy the field. Now the, the, the grave is at the edge of the field, so it's a small part of the field. You have to become a big field, and the edge of the field, I've seen this in Israel, there's a burial plot, and kibbutz has it at the edge of the, at the edge. Don't put a, a, a cemetery right in the middle of the field. So what's going to happen is Avram insists on paying. Avram says it's as good as paying. Shema'enu, he said, listen to me. Notati kesef asadeh, notati, in verse number 13. I've given the money. It doesn't mean he gave it away. It means it's as good, it's, we have in English, it's a, it's, a, it's a done deal. I've given the money already. Notati, it's your money. Kesef asadeh, he understands what he wants. I'll pay you for the field. I'll buy the field also. You say it's, a, it's you gotta buy, you can't have one without the other. If you want the grave, you gotta buy the field. Okay, I'll buy the field. No matter, no problem, it's, it's a done deal. So Ephraim says to Abraham, he says, listen to me, he says, 400 shekel kesef between me and you. What is it between us? Bury your dead. 
So Avram pays the money and he pays it with the best kind of currency, Ovel Asokher. Doesn't want to have any kind of suggestions and pay for it. So he pays for it. So it works something like this. The grave will cost you $3,000. The field is $47 million. You want it? It's one, you can't have one, you can't have the grave without the field. Field's a big field. Grave is a small grave. The field has trees, it has all kinds of things in it, the field, the trees, the Torah describes it. If you want the grave, 400 shekel kesef, it's a fortune of money. 400 shekel kesef for a grave? No, it comes with a field. Not just the grave, it comes with the field. Of course I'll buy it. Of course I want it. Which of course is how the verse, how the story ends in verse number 20. So therefore the field Vayakam, Vayakam here from Kiyom, the field was certified as such. It now belongs to Abraham. The field belongs to Abraham. The Yamara Shabo, and also the, 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 the cave inside it, which functions as a gravesite. The Abraham Lachuzad Kever, the permanent possession of the Kever. That's what he's after. And the reason is simple. Because the point is that what we're talking about is symbolic acquisition in the land. In the book of Breshit, the place that represents symbolic acquisition of the land is Hebron. That's the way it works in the book of Breshit. It's not a political statement, far from it. But that's how it works in the book. So and I'll demonstrate this next time. The person who, rep person who understood the covenant, how it works, was not Abraham. The person who understood it was Sarah. And therefore, it's only appropriate that Maratamach Pelah is actually Sarah's grave. We're talking about Abraham's grave. Yes, he's also buried there. And so are the other Avot and Imahot, except for Rachel. But at the end of the day, the Yahuzad Kever is the place where Sarah is buried. It's Avram's way of saying, in effect, that she was right. And she's the person who has to represent how the covenant takes place because she's the one who understood how the covenant takes place. Were left to Abraham, we wouldn't have the right person. We'd have Yishmael, as much as he loves him. Maybe he's a good person, maybe he's not, but he's not covenantal. So therefore, Achuzat Kever, the term that appears three times in the beginning and the end of the story, it's, uh, that's what Avram is after. And of course, to get Achuzat Kever, he has to also buy the field. What the Talmud speaks of when it talks about stay Ephron, the field of Ephron. It doesn't talk about the grave of Ephron. It talks about the field of Ephron. And it has a big advantage, you know, that the place which represents the Jewish future is not just a grave, but it's also a field. It's a place where things grow, not just to mark the past, but to uh, anticipate the future. So I'll, I'll, I want to come back to this purchase of the grave uh, and the field next time because there's some other very interesting features over here, which I haven't touched upon yet. So again, we'll meet in two weeks. There are other classes and uh, good. Look forward to our continuing. Uh, someone has, a, for a minute or two, someone has comments or questions, I'll take it. And you can always email me at dsilver at rishad.org. Yes, you have it. Um, the uh, parallel occurs to me of Boaz um, and his public redemption of Ruth and uh, thereby the kingship, and that this echoes these two stories and very publicly in the eyes of the elders and very formally um, getting any other claim out of the way and um, 
and taking quote unquote possession. Sure, I would say more, but I would say there's an additional element to the Boaz. I agree with you. There's actually something additional to the Boaz story because the point of the Boaz story is not just that it's publicly formalized, which is true. He does it at the gate, he takes the elders, there's the court, the people, and all that's true. There's actually something else in the Boaz story, which is the kingship. Was the kingship. The kingship is the editorial comment of the writer. There's something else here. Okay. He wants the people to, uh, to uh, accept Ruth. He's accepted Ruth privately the night before in the threshing place. But it's important that the people accept her. And they have to understand that such a person who is truly Abraham's daughter has to be accepted. The Chumash emphasizes a million times over the acceptance of the, of the, of the ger is something which is so critical to, to the reading of the Torah. Ahavtemet ger, etc. Someone in, in good faith wants to join, it's not a club. Someone who believes in the principles of this faith, who wants to come close to God, who thinks this path is right for them, we have to accept this person. And that's actually what distinguishes us, hopefully, in other ways as well, from, from, from Mitzrayim. Mitzrayim is a place that doesn't accept the outsider, and our tradition does. So Boaz is insistent on that Ruth be accepted, not just by him personally. He loves Ruth, he accepts Ruth, he calls her an Eshet Chayel, but that's not sufficient. The point of the book is the people have to embrace Ruth fully. And from this, kingship will come, because at the end of the day, it's connected. Because a king is one who understands the responsibility to all the people, not just the family, not the family at all. The king is one who understands the king is the king of all people every person uh, the king is responsible for. So those two things come together. So the genealogy at the end of Ruth makes total sense. And of course, the book of Ruth is describing the qualities that a king should have, the qualities of resp taking responsibility with Ruth manifests, which they only manifest, and which Boaz manifests. It's a beautiful little book, but there it's about, I think, primarily, not just formalizing, but actually Boaz insists on everybody accepting, and that's part of Boaz's genius, actually. That's why Boaz is a leader, because Boaz has a vision, but he's able to, to allow other people to, to, to share the vision, to understand the vision, to be able to get people to understand and to buy into a vision is part of what it means to be king. That's part of the kingship, that's the political side. To have a vision is the first thing, to have a, a powerful vision, and then to be able to explain the vision in such a way that people understand the necessity of buying into the vision. I'll, I'll stop at this point then. Thank you for the comment. Uh, okay, so we'll, we'll meet again in two weeks and then hopefully there are other stuff going on in the summer as well. Maybe Noah can fill us in. Thank you again. Thank you. Thank you as always, Rabbi Silver, for Thank a you. wonderful, wonderful class and to all of you for being part of Drisha's learning community. It's always so rich and vibrant and I feel like we always get more than we signed up for. And that is thanks to everyone's participation. As Rabbi Silver said, we will not be meeting in this class next week, but the following week we will conclude. Uh, if you really, really miss Drisha tomorrow night, uh, Adele, Dr. Adele Berlin will be having her final class in her series about Shir Hashirim, which has been wonderful. You can catch up with our audio library online. And 
We also have a couple of Wednesday, Wednesday night classes coming up. This week, it will be the early development of Jewish universalism from the Bible to the rabbinic period with Dr. Malka Simkovich, who is always wonderful. And the following week, it will be exploring Rabbi Sachs on the universal and the particular particular with Dr. Samuel Labens, who is also wonderful. So please have a wonderful day for people who are observing the fast. Please be safe. And we hope to see you again soon.